Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In June of 1876, on the eve of America's 100th birthday, two armies went to war. Led by the war chief Sitting Bull, the peoples of the Great Plains clashed with George Armstrong Custer's vaunted 7th Cavalry. Due to negligence on all levels of command and the supreme horsemanship of the Plains Indians, Custer's men were thoroughly defeated. Now, almost 150 years later, controversy still swirls around the events that transpired on those grassy Montana plains. The verdict is still out on whether Custer's last stand was really that, or merely another total military disaster in the face of an overwhelming native enemy. On this episode, we discuss the Battle of the Little Bighorn. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On season 5 of the series, we're discussing battlegrounds. The who, what, where, when, and why of some of the most epic showdowns in history. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared. And you can follow me on Twitter by searching Wartime Podcast or at Brady Kreitzer. You can visit our Facebook page, The Conversations Ever-Growing and Fully Alive. Facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. You can visit my author's website for news, updates, and events. We have a lot coming up this summer. I hope to meet you soon. BradyKreitzer.com. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web. WartimePodcast.com. I am super psyched for today's episode. It's one of the most studied battles in American history. It seems like whatever you're searching for is what you tend to take from it. But without question, the Battle of the Little Bighorn, Custer's Last Stand, is one of the most controversial and one of the most heavily discussed singular days in American history. One of the things about this show is that early on in season one, two, and three, we did an entire theme of a show. We talked about the colonial frontier in season one, we talked about the ancient world in season two. We talked about the American Revolution in Season 3. But one of the issues with that, and I do enjoy it, is that we don't get to branch out and talk about other things that are not directly related to that topic. So I like Season 5. I want to continue with Season 5, maybe maybe longer than we typically would, because we can literally talk about anything. And of course, if you visit the Facebook page, if you hit me up on Twitter... Um, If you visit the website and send an email, send your recommendations for episodes you want to hear, and I'm glad to do it, because again, it gives us the freedom to keep it fresh, keeps us all on our toes, and I think most importantly, it gets you uh, involved in the conversation by, quite frankly, listening to what you want to hear. So today, I am psyched. Uh, I got an email uh, during the break, again, we, we had about two months off. Uh, from a young man who was in 7th grade, and I remember 7th grade, and I had a lot of things on my mind in 7th grade, but I will admit that history was not one of them. 
But a seventh grader named Troy emailed. He's from outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And he asked me, can you tell us more about the Battle of the Little Bighorn, about Custer's Last Stand? And the email was pretty impressive. He, he wanted to understand, or wanted more information on, how an entire battle could be named after the actions of one person. Like the other, uh, you know, several dozen men who were with Custer don't have their names associated with the battle either. So Troy, this one's for you. One of my favorite favorite battles and battlefields in North America, uh, the Battle of the Little Bighorn. As always, uh, we will talk about the context of the battle first. Battles are great, but by themselves, they don't make a lot of sense. They're just a fist fight. They're pretty easy to understand. You shoot me, I shoot you. Whoever uh, has the most people left at the end wins. We have to understand what causes the battles. So again, we want to set up the Battle of the Little Bighorn uh, with some helpful background information. This event will happen in the year 1876, a full 100 years after the year 1776, the founding of the United States of America. This battle will happen, even more than that, in late June of 1876, just one week before the country celebrates its 100th birthday. And I want to kind of paint that scene for you. As Americans in places like New York and Philadelphia and New Orleans uh, and Miami and Charleston and Pittsburgh and Cleveland are all getting ready to celebrate the country's 100th birthday, July 4th, 1876, newspapers that should be jubilant for the centennial have only bad news. And that bad news is that an American army out west, in a place that most people would never visit, and most people probably didn't even know existed, in an area today we call Montana, was entirely and completely destroyed. One of, if not the worst military disasters in American history. And even worse than that, they were not defeated by some European army, some equally trained force. They were defeated by a people in their minds that were inferior, Indians. Now, I want you to think about how that feels. You want to wake up to good news on the 100th anniversary of our country's birth, and all you get is pretty terrible news. That is just one of the many sort of compelling twists to George Armstrong Custer's defeat and death at the Little Bighorn in June of 1876. And it's one of the things that hooked me right away, because again, a lot of things go on at once, and... If you lived in that time period, um, this would have all of the sort of uh, animosity and outrage and sadness uh, that would come with any other any other major attack in this country. Um, so let's talk about it. Let's dig in. After the American Civil War, 1861 to 1865, America finds itself in what it believes to be a pretty good place. There is really no threat of a foreign enemy ever marching on our soil again. 1865 sort of cleared the last hurdle, a fight amongst ourselves. And you're in the year 1876. You are looking at an end to the Reconstruction era. A lot of the pretty terrible things that happened after the Civil War are dying down. Not all of them, but a lot of them. And the country is ready to move forward into what it thinks of as its gilded age. 
uh, its age of promise and economic wealth and this explosion of the industrial era and all of these things. But still, the ball keeps bouncing. We still have an army. It still has a purpose to serve. It's not going to be fighting in combat uh, against you know, other armies, uh, but they do have unique roles to fill. And one of them turns to conquering the American West. At least that's how Americans would have viewed it. Fulfilling that last stretch of that collective identity Americans called Manifest Destiny. America's God-given duty. Most of them were volunteers. When the war ended, most of them went home. They were the people in the army. The diehards. They couldn't really give it up. I mean, they were dyed-in-the-wool, true blue soldiers. They came from the north and they came from the south. They needed to serve. But service in the army wasn't going to be what it was throughout the American Civil War. The army would shrink down to a fraction of its original size during the war. The people who were left were, again, largely aware they were going to be moving somewhere else, especially far away in the distant west. But they knew that going in. This is the new phase of the American military. A smaller army, a unified army between regions north and south, and this, this general understanding that they would be taming a very wild and very distant world. That's how they saw it. And if you were okay with that, if that was cool with you, if you knew that the days of massive set-piece battles like Gettysburg and Chancellorsville uh, and Richmond, uh, if, you, if you were okay with the fact that that was behind you, and you were okay with the idea that glory, which came pretty easy in the American Civil War for the survivors, would be much more difficult to find, the army was for you. One of those men was the cavalry commander, George Armstrong Custer. Now, a little bit about Custer, you have to understand, again, which makes the story so much more interesting, uh, but it's very important, is his attitude. George Armstrong Custer was a cavalry commander. Cavalry, you may have heard that term before, very simply, is soldiers on horseback. Throughout the American Civil War, cavalry, in a practical sense, was used in a couple different ways. Mostly, they were the eyes and ears of the army. They were an, an intelligence-gathering force. They'd move out to a distant region. They'd spy on what the enemy was doing. And because they're on horseback, they would hurry back to the rest of the army and fill in the commanding officer on what was waiting for them. But cavalrymen are much more than that. They don't carry rifled muskets. That's very hard to use on horseback. So they carry usually a six-shooter, usually a pistol, a navy revolver, something like that. And when they did fight, they tend to fight other cavalry units. So they carry these long sabers, these swords at their side. So a cavalry battle would literally be people on horseback shooting at each other at close range with, uh, with pistols and dueling with swords. Uh, even by the standards of the 1860s and 70s, sword fighting was sort of a thing of the past. You know, that's sort of Game of Thrones style warfare. But they did it. The other part of being a cavalry officer was that 
you were considered to be the hippest and coolest, most uh, ostentatious member of your army. Cavalry commanders got all the chicks. They'd come into town in very fine clothes. They'd wear all of their medals and all of their buttons uh, would be polished. Uh, They'd wear large feathers in their hats. Their gloves would be perfectly white. Their clothes perfectly pressed. They would be the main attraction when the army came to town. They were the superstars of the day. When the rest of the infantrymen, the grunts, are dirty and covered in dust, the cavalry commanders were a step up. So men like James Ewell Brown Stewart, the great Confederate commander in the American Civil War, the last cavalier they called him, really embodied that spectacle that was the cavalry commander. On the other side is George Armstrong Custer, fought for the Union, fought at Gettysburg and won uh, one of the sort of auxiliary battles at Gettysburg in the in East Cavalry Field. But Custer ate it up. He had long blonde hair. He would actually curl it. He had a long blonde mustache. He would also wax and curl that. He was considered to be a show-off. He was considered to be ostentatious. He was considered to be an arrogant and sort of uh, foolhardy uh, commander. But he loved it. And he was by far, probably, I would say, almost certainly, the most popular, if not the most well-known member of the American military after the Civil War. Now, for him, who was toasted and celebrated in cities all across the North, to give that up, and to go west tells you just how important being in the military was to Custer. It was everything to him. If he didn't have that, what did he have? He was just another guy with with curly blonde hair. Maybe he could have been in Poison or Twisted Sister or something if he was born 100 years later. But at any rate, he wasn't. So he stayed in the military, and he went out west. This story for us begins in the year 1868. In 1868... The United States of America signs a treaty with the tribes of the Great Plains, known as the Treaty of Fort Laramie. That's a big one, Fort Laramie. And the Treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868 basically said, You, the Indians, specifically the Lakota, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, and others, will have land all to yourself. And we, the Americans, will have land all to ourselves. We won't come into your territory. You don't come into ours. It's the beginning of what we can think of as the reservation system. And many, many, many of the Great Plains people went along with this. The land they were given was in what is today South Dakota. And it was the sacred Black Hills. The Black Hills were always sacred to these people. By what we can gather, they first discovered the Black Hills or took possession of the Black Hills in about 1776, at about the time of the American Revolution, and a hundred years later, it was their most important land. And it wasn't a great deal, because again, before this, the Indians could have gone anywhere, uh, but it was better than nothing. So some of the more conciliatory native peoples, again, from the Lakota and the Cheyenne, signed the Treaty of Fort Laramie. Not all of them. Many say, I will die before I become what they call a reservation Indian. But many do. And with that treaty, it seems that everything's going to work out. 
the Americans won't come to the Black Hills and the Indians and their warriors and their hunting parties won't come into what is considered to be American territory or everything else. And it goes really well for a while. In 1874, our dear friend George Armstrong Custer bursts onto the scene yet again. And this starts up a whole new problem. In 1874, Custer is given a very clear job. It's to take a group of men into the sacred Black Hills, map the area, find out what's there, take with you cartographers and geologists and so on, geographers, and come back. Uh, one of the things that Custer's men find in the Black Hills, unfortunately for the Indians, is gold. Now, I want you to think about this. If you are uh, a member of one of the tribal nations who signed the Treaty of Fort Laramie, the number one selling point of giving up your ancestral hunting grounds, the land that your father taught you to hunt on and his father taught him to hunt on, and so on and so on for dozens of generations, is that you had a land that was guaranteed to be all yours. But in 1874, Custer's expedition discovers gold. And all of a sudden, that land is becoming much more attractive to the Americans. Americans begin to pour into the Black Hills. Outbreaks of violence begin. Indians kill white people. White people kill Indians. It's a bad scene. And the U.S. government makes an offer to the Lakota and the Cheyenne to buy the Black Hills from them. Now, for these chiefs, it's a no deal. The agreement was signed. You gave your word. But, can't get in the way of progress, I guess. The U.S. government will ultimately, on January 31st of 1876, inform the people who live there, the natives, they must vacate the area or be removed by force. According to the sources, we have no official response from the native nations who live there. And this sets off a major conflict that will become a war that will send the Great Plains aflame. And it will be sort of the next war America will face uh, after the American Civil War. Now, there's been several Indian wars in the intermediary in different regions, but this one is the latest. And that kind of sets the table and sets the tone for what we're going to talk about today. It's incredible to think that... The Union Army, the army that literally just defeated Robert E. Lee, is having trouble and stumbling over fighting a group of Indians. Now, for Americans at the time, that's what they would think. That's how they would feel. As historians, we know that it's a much more difficult task than many people think. The horse soldiers of the frontier, the Cheyenne, the Arapaho, the Sioux, uh, were some of the greatest horsemen North America has ever seen. Different in style and technique than the U.S. Cavalry, but just as effective. They rode in fast, they struck very quickly, and did a tremendous amount of damage. They could use a rifle as they rode on horseback. They could do things on horseback that most American cavalry, and probably even European cavalry, couldn't do. Because they viewed their relationship with their horse in a fundamentally different way. So when the war breaks out in 1876, it becomes very clear that 
This is not going to be a war where soldiers march into position. It's going to be a war where groups of horsemen pursue one another, meet in very hot, very quick clashes, and then break away. And for the U.S. Army, this was not something they were looking forward to. They had learned by 1876 that fighting the Indians of the, of the Great Plains was a nightmare. They had no qualms about rules of war, at least as Americans saw it. They took spoils from the dead. Uh, they plundered the battlefields. But even more frustratingly, they had no problem retreating, running away, and living to fight another day. In the Western world, we believe in dying and glorious death on the battlefield. For the Indians, they'd rather be alive than have people talk about them. But at any rate, it sets the table. Now, the commander of the Division of the Missouri, of the American military, was a man we've actually talked about already on this show. His name was General Phil Sheridan. Phil Sheridan was one of the destroyer generals of the American Civil War. He was short, like like five foot four short, uh, but he had a very foul mouth. I mean, I wouldn't normally mention that, but everybody who talked about Phil Sheridan, little Phil, talked about the cuss mouth he had. It was like his claim to fame. But he will, like a lot of people who stay in the Army, advance to high-ranking position. And it will fall on him in March of 1876 to send a group of American soldiers into the frontier with the express mission of taking those Indians who will not go to the reservation and either forcing them onto it or killing them. He sends out, in total, three different large forces. The first was led by Colonel John Gibbon, marching out of Fort Ellis in what is today Bozeman, Montana. He had about 450 men with him. The second was a group of 1,000 cavalry and infantrymen, commanded by General George Crook. He was in Wyoming. The third, and the one we're most concerned about, left Fort Abraham Lincoln in what, to, in what is today Bismarck, North Dakota, consisting of about 900 men, led by Alfred Terry, General Alfred Terry. And he's the one we're going to focus on. And the idea was one group leaving from Montana, one group leaving from Wyoming, and one group leaving from the Dakotas, was that these Indians will be very hard to find, but you can almost definitely find them. And when you do, again, destroy them, or force them onto the reservation. Now, Alfred Terry's force is going to be the one we focus on. George Armstrong Custer is part of it. And he's at the command of the 7th U.S. Cavalry. The 7th Cavalry is, I think without question, the single most famous military unit um, in the Army, even still today. We have, believe it or not, in this series, talked about the 7th Cavalry already. We talked about them... Not in anything dealing with the Great Plains, but in the context of the Vietnam War. Earlier this season, we talked about the Battle of the Yaw Drang Valley, one of the earliest battles in the Vietnam War. That group that suffered so much at Landing Zone X-Ray uh, was, believe it or not, the 7th Cav, just like George Armstrong Custer's. So it kind of developed a legend and lore that uh, that's a very unlucky unit, but you're also some of the toughest men if you are in it. Uh, interesting, but important. Now, what were they looking for? Well, 
The Indians of the Great Plains didn't live in a stationary way like Europeans. They moved all the time. And many of these military officers suspected there was a large congregation of over 8,000 of them somewhere on the plains. If you have a, a village of 8,000 people, that also includes women, children, and the elderly, that means you have anywhere from, from maybe 1,000 to 1,500 warriors amongst them, if you think about all men of fighting age. So the idea was, even though you have three separate forces coming from distant reaches, any one of them, if they would encounter an Indian group, could take them out. But again, our focus is on Alfred H. Terry. Now, there was a general idea of where these Indians were located, and there was a reason for that. The area where they will, as it turns out, find them uh, is a place where not just one or two, but four major river systems come together in Montana. Because of that, farming there would be very plentiful. Animals to hunt and kill would also be very plentiful. The rivers were the Powder River, the Rosebud River, the Yellowstone River, and our biggest concern, the Bighorn River. And this is a place where, again, large groups of people could naturally congregate uh, and find success. Now, also in favor of the U.S. Army was the fact that it was also the time of year when the people of the Great Plains got together for what they called their Sun Dance Ceremony, uh, which would sort of be a time of celebration, a time of uh, meditation, a time of prayer, a sort of sense of community building. Uh, and it would bring together hundreds upon hundreds of different people of the Great Plains who didn't typically interact with each other all that much. One of them was a major chief named Sitting Bull. Sitting Bull was in his middle age. Uh, he was a warrior. He was respected for his previous exploits of fighting. And Sitting Bull will have a vision uh, at the Sundance ceremony. And the vision is of American soldiers falling. And this meant to him that the Indian peoples of the plains would soon face an American army and find a great victory. And all of the warriors cheered. Everyone cheered because if there's going to be a battle and they know they're going to win, that's something to be happy for. But Sitting Bull also had an ominous message. And the message was that after the battle, you cannot under any circumstances spoil uh, the dead. That is, take their supplies and shoes and weapons and ammunition, which was very common for all armies to do. Um, and that would be a tough one because a big part of Indian war is living by yourself on the plains, and you need to take whatever you can get. But at any rate, this takes us to late June. On June 22nd, General Alfred Terry will take George Armstrong Custer, again, a superstar of the U.S. military and his 7th Cavalry, and tell them, I want you to take your force, I want you to go west, and I want you to go south, and I want you to try and find this Indian village. You will effectively be creating a hammer and anvil strategy. Uh, and the idea is this, hammer and anvil. Custer and his men will push from the south. The rest of Terry's men will come from the north, a much larger portion. Custer's men will chase whatever Indians he finds directly into the waiting arms of Terry, and they'll have nowhere to go. There's no escape. Custer and the army were not really so concerned about losing a battle to the Indians. They didn't think it would ever happen. They were concerned, however, about the Indians escaping their clutches and keeping the war dragged out even longer. 
So Custer and his 7th Cav are sent out to find them. On the evening of June 24th, Custer's Indian scouts tell him, there is a very large village ahead of us. There may be as many as 8,000 people in it. They don't look like they're prepared for a fight. If we attack them, we can take them. Now, Custer's original plan is to attack them the next morning. He wants to get as close as he can, camp for the night, and ambush them first thing at daybreak. But the problem is, one of his other officers uh, tells him that a few of his men lost their packs uh, and their supplies a few miles back. And when they went back to retrieve them, a group of local Indians had found it and were going through it, and they escaped. So the fear amongst Custer was those Indians almost certainly would have told the other 8,000 people in the village that an American force was nearby. Now this next part is going to sound frustrating. It's going to be confusing, but it is super important in this regard. Custer decides he can't wait any longer. He can't wait till the next day. And he decides in a less than ideal situation, he's going to attack the village right there and right then that day. He feels like his hand is pressed. If you're a military commander, you always want to be in a position to be proactive, not reactive. But, circumstances being what they were, he had to act. Now, Custer's men would be divided into two other columns, really three. He would lead one column himself. Uh, a second column would be mostly supplies. It would stay back. And the other two columns would be led by two people that Custer really didn't like at all. And the feeling was mutual. We like to think that when an army, like any team, uh, is on the field of play in the battlefield, they're all interested in working together. But the reality was, the U.S. Army in the 19th century had some of the biggest egos our country's ever seen. And they just flat out didn't get along. Now, normally, you'd hope that wouldn't interfere with the actual effectiveness of the army. As we'll see today, however, that's, in my opinion, exactly what happens. One side is led by a man named Captain Frederick Benteen. Benteen and Custer have a notoriously rotten relationship. They hate each other, and I don't think that's a stretch. They openly criticize one another. Benteen had actually written to someone who gave his letter to a newspaper criticizing Custer for what he was doing in the, in the West. It just wasn't a good scene. Custer knows it. Custer hates him. Benteen thinks Custer, who, by the way, is also a Civil War officer, uh, is arrogant and foolish. This is going to come into play. The other commander is a man named Major Marcus Reno. Uh, and that's a name, if you live in Nevada, you probably know. And Reno doesn't hate Custer as much as Benteen, but there is some still animosity there. At any rate, uh, Custer will take these three columns of, of actual attacking forces and move on the native village. He tells Benteen he wants you to move left and scout for any random extra parties of Indians that might be wandering around. Cover the distant flank. Uh, basically, find whatever you can and, and attack it. Uh, Benteen says to his commanding officer, don't you want us to stay here? Don't you think you need more help if you're going to attack a village of 8,000 people? And you have less than 500 total? Don't you think that would be more effective if I was used here? And Custer says, no, go. And this is probably done in a dismissive way to sort of take Benteen out of the battle 
and very likely deny him of whatever victory was about to come. Make no mistake, this is petty, this is nonsensical, this is a personal grudge. But as we'll see, it very well may have cost Custer his life. He tells Marcus Reno and his men, I want you to charge the village that's set up along the Little Bighorn River. And he said, and I will fall in a few steps behind you. Now, the landscape of this area is very important. It's rolling grasslands. There's high hills and low valleys. It's very easy to disappear into one of these valleys. And this will be important as we talk about the way the battle plays out. As Reno's marching toward uh, the village, one of the things that strikes them is that there are no seemingly no warriors in the village. They look through their binoculars and their telescope and they see... Um, Men, they see women and children, they don't see many of the fighting men. So they think they're out hunting. As Custer will, uh, eyewitnesses say, uh, they caught them napping. The problem was, there were warriors in the village. They were just asleep, they were sleeping in. And by the time Reno's men approach the village, he has about 90 men with him, they all pour, pour out to fight. For the native warrior of the Great Plains, there is a great honor and symbolism and spiritual boost that comes from being the very first one amongst your people to actually physically touch the enemy. And the warriors will drive in a huge group toward Reno's 90 men with that very goal in mind. They're young men, they're in their teens and 20s, they want to be the first. They want to be the best. Uh, and they pursue, and the pursuit is hot. Uh, Reno tells his men to get off their horses. If they would have stayed on, they would have most certainly been defeated. Reno puts his men in a line, shooting at this charging wall of horse soldiers. Uh, but he has to retreat. He can't stay in one place. Reno will run back toward a, a small patch of trees, I hesitate to call it a forest, and begins to climb a hill where he hopefully can regather his men and fight these warriors off. As it turns out, Reno and his men are picked apart as they flee. This in time will become known as Reno Hill. What a coincidence, right? No, I'm just kidding. It's named after him. Uh, but it happens. One of the problems Reno suffered was that he believed George Armstrong Custer's column would be right behind him in support. But he never came. Why not? Well, it's Custer being Custer. One of the things Custer learned in his many battles on the frontier, this was not the first, was that Indian warriors will never attack women or children of their own tribe. And you can use them on the battlefield as effective decoys or human shields to protect yourself. I mean, how scandalous is that? What a scoundrel, but it's Custer's like, it's like his trademark move. A year earlier at a place called the Washita, uh, Custer was surrounded in a very similar circumstance by a large group of hostile Indians, but he had a lot of women and children who were captives. And he told his men, Put the women and children in front of us as human shields. And I have a feeling the Indians will let us march right through. And the warriors did. There's no honor in that. Not to them, not really to anyone. But that was like Custer's go-to. So, whenever Reno first attacked the village, here in June of 1876, Custer didn't go and help. What he did instead was pursue the innocent people of the village, the women and children who were fleeing away. I want you to think about that. Custer's men are engaged on the battlefield, 90 of them. They need help. And he takes his entire column in pursuit of children and women. 
Because the idea was he'll get these women, he'll capture them, he'll put them in front of his own men, and there's your human shield, and there's the end of the battle. It's an incredible waste of time. There's numerous numerous eyewitnesses that see it. There's numerous there's numerous eyewitnesses that see it, both white and Indian. And many people even speculate it looks like Custer's chasing children. It doesn't look like he's interested in a fight at all. We know, of course, what he was doing. He was trying to acquire them uh, to use as human shields and, and effectively end the battle. So Reno's men have to retreat. They're being dismantled. Custer's men are pursuing these women and children. But things don't go their way, because the Bighorn River is always between him and his targets. Custer will continuously push following them up something called Medicine Tail Cooley. It's like a, a pass in the hills. And he'll keep trying to cross the river and get them, but his men can't do it. The ground's too swampy. It's like quicksand. So these women and children survive. They never quite get captured by uh, Custer and his men. Indian warriors catch up. They start opening fire on Custer and his men. And eventually Custer himself has to retreat up another hill he finds. This will be known as Last Stand Hill. Warriors quickly overwhelm the hill. The men who were pursuing Reno on the other hill leave Reno's dismantled group behind and join in on this fight. And Custer's entire column basically falls into disarray. Some run off into the distance. They're ran down, as the Indians say, like buffalo killed on the spot. Others gather on what's called Last Stand Hill and fight. Custer himself is engaged in this fight. But there's one piece we haven't talked about, at least in a while, that could have saved George Armstrong Custer. And it was Frederick Benteen's column, one-third of Custer's entire fighting force. Where are they? Well, they're still off in the distance scouting. At this point, Benteen's pride is hurt. Uh, Benteen is uh, angry and upset that his commander would slight him in this way. He's got no love for George Armstrong Custer. But Custer sends a message to him. Uh, that tells him to get to the battlefield as fast as possible. The message says, and I'll read this, Come on, big village, be quick. Bring packs. P.S. Bring packs. We have that letter. Benteen clearly could probably sense the urgency in it. He could have been there in maybe an hour, maybe less if he rushed. But he apparently was in no rush, and he and his men slowly trotted toward Uh, the rest of his army being torn to pieces by the collective warriors of the Cheyenne, the Lakota, and the Arapaho. By the time Benteen meets with what's left of Reno's column, they're in total disarray. Reno's column is destroyed, but Reno's the commanding officer. He outranks Frederick Benteen. He's a major. Benteen's a captain. And Benteen says to him, should we go help Custer? I hear a fight in the distance. But by this point, Reno seems to have lost his will. He seems to have Uh, maybe broken down mentally. He's the only one that can give the order, and he won't do it. He's going on and on about finding one of his friends who was maybe killed in the original start of the battle, and that's all he'll talk about. I mean, he was effectively uh, mentally incapacitated at that point. So Benteen could have given the order, but he doesn't do it. It's almost like, amazingly, he almost wants Custer to fail, and, by the way, die in the process. Every time he's asked by people beneath him, should we go help? Captain Benteen, should we go help? Benteen sort of says, no, I'm not the commanding officer. It's Reno's call. And Reno's, you know, spinning in circles somewhere. Finally, one of the men beneath him, a Captain Weir, says enough is enough. 
I'm going to help Custer. As they get closer, they see there's not much left of Custer's column be helped. Custer himself has been killed. His men are being killed. Uh, his men are wounded on the ground. They're being executed on the spot. They're being plundered. It's a pretty bad scene. The major part of the battle is over. There is more. Uh, the remnants of Custer's army will be pursued and attacked by the natives uh, the next day, well into the next day, until, remember, the anvil, the hammer and anvil portion, Alfred Terry's group will come, and they'll sort of alleviate the 7th Cav. Uh, but the damage is done. The Battle of the Little Bighorn is finished. Men are found dead on the battlefield. Uh, their bodies are mutilated and, and destroyed, not only from fighting, but afterwards. It's a total annihilation. There will be an official inquiry into this. Uh, Reno's testimony is some of the best we have. And it seems like, by all accounts, it was a failure on numerous levels. Most of it brought on by, I think, the petty squabbling of officers. I maybe put a little too much stock in that. I mean, they were outnumbered greatly on the battlefield by the Arapaho and Cheyenne and Lakota, but nevertheless, um, I think Benteen could have done more to save Custer. So America now has to deal with the aftermath. I mean, your greatest military hero is dead. And he's not killed by some Confederate force or some German force. Uh, he's killed by Indians. How can this be? Well, as a country, I think... Uh, Americans at the time needed something to hang their hats on. So they came up with the story of the last stand. Custer sort of fighting to the end. Uh, and that was, you know, the way they coped with the loss. And we do that kind of stuff all the time in all aspects of life. Uh, but it's made the Battle of the Little Bighorn one of the most constantly studied events in American history. And... We've sort of put it in a very special place as a nation, what it means and what it doesn't mean. Now, the ironic thing about Custer's last stand is that it really wasn't Custer's last stand at all. I mean, he's dead, let's face it. But even though the Indians won, led by Crazy Horse and Sitting Bull, who didn't actually fight but was certainly in the village, uh, it was kind of their last stand. Because after this, politics takes over. And the U.S. Army is flooded with money and supplies, and more importantly, the consent of the people to go after these Indians and wipe them out, make them pay for the little bighorn. And they are effectively eradicated from that moment on. Uh, they are devastated, and they never recover. It becomes official government policy to exterminate them. It's sort of a sad ending, you know, But and it was a last stand, but not the last stand we tend to think of. So this is a very cool battle. I'd recommend uh, that you go to the Little Bighorn. It's right on Interstate 90 uh, in Montana. If you live on the East Coast, it's a short 28-hour drive away. So go for it. If you live in the West Coast, I think it's like 20 hours. It's one of those things that, you know, it's not really close to anything. And if you go there, you have to go for that purpose. But it is so worth it. The highway goes right through the battlefield. But the thing I love about the Bighorn Battlefield is that it's really sort of unchanged. You know, everything's still there. It's a lot of nothingness, green rolling hills. But if you have a good guide and they have great people out there, they can point and say, Custer's men went across that ridge. The Indians attacked through this coulee. Uh, there's the Bighorn River. I mean, it's almost like it could have happened yesterday. 
So it's a very, very neat place. And it's a very neat battle. And I think a good one to kind of get us back into the thrill and the charge of things here in Season 5 of Wartime. Next week, we jump back to the Civil War. Confederate Revenge. The Burning of Chambersburg. Thank you for joining us. I'm Brady Kreitzer. And this is Wartime.